The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Over you simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH. I'm Andy, your host, and today I'm delighted to welcome my good friend, Dr. Peter Hammond. I'm going to bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me? Yes, indeed. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Great to have you on for your weekly visit. And uh, today, Peter has prepared another presentation I'm looking forward to hearing entitled The Real Story Behind Reparations for Slavery. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off with this one today? Well, this is a major topic today, and I'm informed by people in America that it's turning out to be one of the biggest, hottest topics in a run-up to the 2020 elections, and that is reparations for slavery. Now, uh, according to the narrative, uh, slavery seems to have been a unique phenomenon that uh, only Europeans engaged in and only black Africans were victims of. And the reparations for slavery are being demanded overwhelmingly of the United States of America. And they are uh, sometimes even of, of Europe and Great Britain, which is fascinating because no country in history did more to fight the slave trade and to set slaves free than Great Britain. And no country did more to invest in free African countries and to, uh, for example, Sierra Leone and uh, America and Liberia and poured in vast amount in order to send freed slaves to the, the Royal Navy, dedicated the entire 19th century as their highest priority to setting the captives free, even on the high seas, even going up uncharted um, uh, r rivers in order to storm slave, slave stockades and set the captives free. So it's amazing, uh, the, the narrative. But uh, we need to say that restitution is a biblical concept. And restitution is always to be paid by the criminal to the victim directly. But what they're talking about today in the uh, terminology of restitution is nothing to do with biblical restitution because people who didn't do the crime are being expected to reimburse people who whenever the victims. And it's basically today, this reparations, aside from being a political talking point uh, in order to overwhelm debate and uh, shout and uh, stampede people by temper tantrum tactics uh, into supporting the anti-Trump cause, uh, basically today, the reparations restitution movement seems to have become more of a scam, an extortion scheme as a cover for corruption, because 
uh, you get uh, some intriguing posters. One poster is of the actor who played in the Roots TV series. And there is, uh, next to the picture of this actor, they put it in black and white, though, to make you feel like it's a historic picture instead of uh, a film which is filmed in color. Uh, and they say, every descendant of this man deserves one and a half million dollars. Now, uh, that's interesting because that man wasn't a slave and he wasn't from Africa. But uh, I don't think the fact that they're using a fictional character and an actor from a fictional film series based on a fictional book series uh, seems to have basically uh, crossed the consciousness. But that basically shows you what you're talking about. It's all about money and it's not about justice because justice is restitution paid by the criminal to the victim. And uh, just uh, to put things into perspective, do you realize that there are more black Americans today in the prison system in America than there ever were at any one time as slaves in all of North America? So right now, black people today are more in bondage than they were back in the days of the slave trade. And Therefore, you get people like Candace Owens, a black American conservative, uh, supporter of Trump, going to the reparations committee and so on and saying to them, listen, this is distraction from the real issues. The real issues is uh, here, the average American here is not interested in being talked into being a victim. I'm not interested in being a victim. Um, I, I want to be a person who's responsible for my own actions and so on. And this victim narrative actually uh, degrades us and uh, reduces us down to just people with hands out to get free handouts. And this isn't acceptable. We need to uh, be able to earn our own livings and so on. But uh, uh, it's an important point that today American black people are more enslaved to the Democrat welfare system where you've got fatherless homes majority of black people in America are now born in in single parent homes, uh, not even knowing their father in most cases, and having no meaningful contact with the father uh, in the rest. And as a result of this, a huge amount of the drug, gang, uh, abuse, crime, uh, lifestyles that's going on leads to a hugely disproportionate amount of black males in particular being in the prison system. So whereas in the past, you would have had in the old slavery system over 200 years ago, in the South in particular, families living together on beautiful farms, having enormous amount of freedom where they were effectively indentured labor, but uh, in many cases, they had access to schools, they were in churches, they were in congregations, they had good community life, they were treated well, and they were fed well. Today, many black people are living worse state than uh, slaves would have been in the average farm in America 200 years ago. Uh, that's an interesting perspective too. But we, we need to get a better understanding of what's going on in the slave trade because first of all, what about slavery today? What about the white slaves kidnapped from Europe into North Africa, which outnumber the slaves from Africa who were kidnapped and taken to North America? What about the human trafficking today? What about Red China's slave trade? What about the organ harvesting in China today? What about the sex slave? What about the 42 million people involved in slavery today? So it's interesting how there's a tremendous ignoring of the ongoing slave trade today. And uh, it seems so unreasonable 
that the discussion of the 300-year European and North American involvement in the Atlantic slave trade is dominating the discussion. But why not the 1,400-year Arabic involvement in the slave trade in North Africa, Central Africa, East Africa, across the Indian Ocean, into the Middle East? What about the involvement of the Yao people of Malawi or the Madagascans and many other tribes who were involved in massive amounts of slave trade on behalf of the Muslims? More importantly, if the slave trade, which Europe outlawed in 1815, that's after the Battle of Waterloo, the Congress of Vienna, the great powers of Europe all signed the abolition of slavery 1815. Now, Britain had already abolished the slave trade in all areas Britain had control of in 1807. But all of Europe, with the exception of Portugal, outlawed the slave trade by 1815. And isn't that interesting? And yet, do you know when slavery was abolished in uh, Saudi Arabia, for example? Uh, 1962. Uh, so th there's, there's an enormous amount of facts that are sort of left out of the narrative. Uh, about And slavery is still going on today. 42 million people today are slaves today, which is more than the amount of people who were slaves in the world when William Wilberforce was leading the charge to fight the slave trade two centuries ago. So the more you know your history, the less this reparations uh, narrative uh, impresses one. And it just shows the importance of history and also explains why so many of the Marxist Antifa BLM crowd are pulling down monuments and statues and waging a war in history. And even more insidiously, Hollywood re-inventing uh, history with their based on a true story inspired by real events. You know, what they should add is uh, while the names and the places are true, the uh, facts have been distorted in order to protect the guilty and to demonize the, vi the victims. So the, the um, Hollywood rewriting of history from an anti-Christian perspective has uh, confused so many people who don't read books and who don't know the history to actually believe all this. And so when people say, well, what's so important about history and why should it concern me? Well, just something like reparations today or the discussion about slavery today or the guilt manipulation, the gaslighting, the Stockholm syndrome, manipulating and bullying tactics of the Marxists today should show you why you need to know your history. And as a result, I actually wrote the book Slavery, Terrorism, and Islam, The Historical Roots and Contemporary Threat. And when I first brought out the first edition in 2005, I got death threat fatwas, uh, Islamic death threats from jihadists for producing this book. So that's interesting. I wrote a book claiming that Islam was intolerant and violent and documented it. And uh, to prove me wrong, Muslim radicals uh, threatened me with uh, death threat fatwa, which means every Muslim on earth is obligated to kill me. And uh, uh, interesting, I thought they actually proved my thesis rather than disproved it. So I thought if they liked it so much, I came out with a second edition, which was double the size, and then a third edition, which was three times the size. And that's been our best-selling book of all time. We've just vast amounts of these sold. We can't keep up with it. We printed 5,000, print another 5,000, print another 5,000, print another 3,000, print another 10,000. And so slavery, terrorism, Islam, the historical roots and contemporary threat has been quite a sensation uh, from our mission's perspective, one of our very best sellers. And uh, the more I got to know history, the more uh, I, I realized how important this is in the battle. So, for example, uh, back in 1999, friends of mine in missions 
who should know better, took part in what they called a reconciliation walk, where they started walking, would you believe it, across from Europe to Turkey, with wearing uh, T-shirts that said, I'm sorry uh, for what the Crusaders did. And uh, these messages normally in Arabic. Now, uh, that's pretty bizarre, considering all the terrorism Turkey's taken part in through the centuries and one of the biggest slave trading nations in history. And not that it's over yet either. There's still slaves in, in Turkey. And there's still a huge amount of abuse of Christians and persecution church in Turkey as well. And what they're doing to the poor Syrian Christians in northern Syria where they're invading is, is another story. But uh, at the very moment that friends of mine were apologizing for the Crusades, which ended in 1291, that's over 700 years ago. And, uh, you know, my father didn't take part in the Crusades. My grandfather didn't take part in the Crusades. I wasn't involved in the Crusades. But we've got to apologize for the Crusades to people involved in jihad today. And our mission base was being bombed repeatedly. We had about 140 bomb craters around a mission station school in Sudan. I was bombed during Sunday service and so on. And at the same time as we've been bombed today and Christians in Sudan are being enslaved today and still are, uh, here were Christians going to Turkey, of all places, to apologize for the Crusades. And now we've got well-meaning uh, or, or dishonest uh, Christians who are going around wanting to uh, have a reparation for slavery. So uh, just take this, for example, uh, for absolute utter hypocrisy. I, I think this is a good illustration. Uh, we all like a tale of two cities. Well, how about a tale of two islands? Back in 2013, President Obama, Barack Hussein Obama, visited Africa at the cost of only $100 million, the most expensive presidential tour ever. And he visited Gori Island, just across the bay from Dakar, the capital of Senegal in West Africa. And there he is photographed at the slave fort's famous door of no return. Major photo op. Uh, and Obama was quoted as saying, this is a testament to when we are not vigilant in defense of human rights. What can happen? Yet, while drawing attention to the slave trade that was outlawed 200 years ago by Christian Britain, he was silent on a much larger ongoing Arab-Muslim slave trade that still plagues Africa today. In fact, within sight of where he is standing, anti-slavery societies have documented that we today have 42 million slaves in the world today, which is probably the largest amount of slaves in the history of the world certainly in the last millennium. According to UNICEF, 1.2 million children are trafficked every year, just children into pedophilia trafficking. And most trafficking victims are girls between five and 15 years old, five and 15 years old. I mean, just think of it. Why is there so much outrage for the slavery which ended two centuries ago and so absolute apathetic indifference to the real serious worst kind of slavery ever going on right now. Many of the governments who enjoy most favored nation status with the United States are actually involved in this modern slave trade. So in fact, Mauritania, bordering Senegal, has over half a million slaves amongst the country's population of just over 3 million today. So it's one in six people in Senegal, uh, in Mauritania, bordering Senegal, have are, are slaves, one in six. So an African-American author, Samuel Cotton, he wrote, Silent Terror, A Journey into Contemporary African Slavery, he reports that Mauritanian Arabs and Berbers bring their black slaves with them to work in Dakar, within sight of Gori Island, 
So where Obama was standing with his photo op, uh, sanctimoniously speaking out against the slave trade that Christians ended two centuries ago, Obama had not one word to say about this ongoing scandal. And that's typical. For foreign consumption and under much external pressure, Mauritania made some half-hearted legislative attempts to outlaw slavery in the 1980s, but it's still going on today. And these have all been described as blatantly insincere and woefully in ineffective. So, for example, in 2011, one case we know, four Mauritanian anti-slavery activists, these weren't slave traders, these were anti-slavery activists, they were sentenced to six months in jail for protesting the enslavement of a 10-year-old girl. And no punishment was ever handed over to the slave owner, and the slave girl disappeared, probably killed to get rid of the evidence. But the people who protested the slavery were locked up for six months in a Mauritanian jail. Let me tell you, six months in a Mauritanian jail is hideous. It's like a lifetime. You may not survive anyway. But President Obama hypocritically stated that his visit to Gori Island, a world heritage site, gives me even greater motivation in terms of human rights around the world. Oh, well, that would be nice. But Africans found that statement hard to take seriously, considering that Obama did not have a single word to say about the ongoing 1,400 years and counting Arab-Muslim slave trade going on today. Uh, although Obama did make a major point of visiting Gori Island on the west coast of Africa and condemning the transatlantic slave trade, which ended two centuries ago, he showed no interest in visiting Zanzibar, the most notorious slave island in history on the east coast of Africa. And it's not that he didn't go close to it. He went to Tanzania. So his second state visit in Africa after Senegal was Tanzania, but he never ventured near the Tanzanian island of Zanzibar, through which 20,000 African slaves were processed every year. Now, why would he not want to photo op in Tanzania's Zanzibar, the greatest slave terminus in history? Well, perhaps he's concerned not to embarrass his Muslim friends, who's still involved in the slave trade today. And also, a visit to Stone Town on Zanzibar would have been even more embarrassing as the former slaves, having been liberated by the Royal Navy, built a magnificent church over the old slave market with a pulpit and altar right by where the auction block and the whipping post had stood. And the Anglican Cathedral Christchurch in Mukamzi Road, in the center of Old Town, occupies the area where the largest slave market of Zanzibar used to be situated. And the construction of the cathedral was intended to celebrate the end of the slave trade on Zanzibar because of British military intervention, of course, which incidentally, I don't know if it still is, but it used to be in the Guinness Book of Record as the world's shortest war, inspired by Henry Morton Stanley's reports from David Livingston uh, about what was going on in Livingston's plea to end this open saw in the world. The Royal Navy launched a, a campaign against Zanzibar and ordered the Sultan uh, to surrender. And when he refused, they shelled his palace, and uh, in a record-breaking few minutes, the white flag was raised, and there, the shortest war in history was uh, the British war on Zanzibar, where they found tens of thousands of slaves, uh, and including in caves under uh, the rocks and just hideous conditions. And so the cathedral was constructed. They began in 1873, the year of the death of missionary explorer Dr. David Livingston, uh, and they completed it and consecrated in 1903. And inside this cathedral is a cross made from the wood 
of the tree under which Dr. David Livingston's heart was buried in Chitambo, northern Zambia, what used to be northern Rhodesia. And near this church, there's a striking monument that's been constructed above the 15 underground cave cells where slaves in transit were incarcerated until they sell to Muslim masters. And the monument in Stone Town consists of five stone figures in a pit representing the captured African slaves who appear to be rising out of the earth. And the shackles around their necks and the chains between them testify to their plight. They look tired and sad, but they look strong. And so Africans are asking, and I published at the time a lot of uh, articles on this and, and radio as well, asking, why did Barack Hussein Obama, an African-American president, continue to be so supportive of radical Muslim regimes who are still engaged in slavery today? Why is he and the Democrats of today and Biden and all the rest, why are they so silent about the largest slave trade and the longest slave trade, the ongoing slave trade, one that hasn't come to an end? The comparisons and the contrast between Gori Island and Zanzibar Island are very striking. While the European involvement in the transatlantic slave trade to America has lasted for just over three centuries. The Arab involvement in the slave trade has lasted 14 centuries, and in some parts of the Muslim world, it's still continuing to this day. While two out of three slaves shipped across the Atlantic were men to work as agricultural laborers, the proportions were reversed in Islamic slave trade in East Africa and across the Indian Ocean and across the Sahara Desert. Two women for every man was enslaved by the Muslims. Uh, because most of the women being enslaved were going to go into sexual slavery, harems and prostitution and so on. And while the mortality rate for slaves transport across the Atlantic was 5% and sometimes as high as 10% could die while crossing the Atlantic, the percentage of African slaves dying in transit in the Trans-Sahara and East African slave trade was reversed. 80 to 90% died before reaching the slave markets. So just mind-boggling how much worse the Islamic slave trade uh, in the Indian Ocean, the Red Sea, East Africa, Trans-Sahara, uh, compared to the uh, Trans-Atlantic, which we always thought was, was bad enough. And while most of the slaves, if not all of the slaves, shipped across the Atlantic were for agricultural work, most of the slaves destined for the Muslim Middle East were for sexual exploitation as concubines in harems and the men for military service. And while many children are born to slaves in America and millions of their descendants are citizens in Brazil, Jamaica, Haiti, USA to this day, uh, some of them rising very high. Uh, you can think of the Condoleezza Rices and so on of this world. Well, but very few descendants of the slaves that ended up in the Middle East survived. And the reason is because while most slaves who went to the Americas could marry and have families, most of the male slaves destined for the Middle East slave bazaars were castrated. Uh, and that was normally done by Jewish merchants, by the way, who were considered most equipped for this because of the circumcision rituals. So the Muslim slave masters uh, had uh, Jewish uh, leaders take doing the castrating of the eunuchs. And of course, many of them died uh, in, in this dangerous procedure. Um, and most of the children born to the women uh, in the Middle East were killed at birth either by drowning or having their throats slit, to maintain Arab numerical superiority. There was a slave revolt uh, early in the 7th century, which so uh, 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 feared the Muslim population that they determined that it was better to just 
kill any children born to the slaves that they'd never have a numerical superiority. It was cheaper, easier, safer uh, to just go and get more slaves than to allow them to procreate in the Middle East. And that's why you don't have descendants of the black slaves taken from the Muslim Middle East today. It's estimated that possibly as much as 11 million Africans were transported across the Atlantic, of which 95% went to South America, Central America, mainly to Portuguese run Brazil or to Spanish South America or to the French possessions such as Haiti. Less than 5%, in fact, it's 4.4% of the slaves who crossed the Atlantic went to North America, United States or Canada, less than 5%. Isn't it interesting how the vast amount of attention goes to the 4.4% who went to North America and virtually no interest in the 95% plus that went to South and Central America. Now, at least 28 million Africans were enslaved by the Arabs, by the Muslims, as at least 80% of those who were captured by the Muslim slave trade were calculated to have died before reaching the slave markets. It's believed the death toll from 14 centuries of the Muslim slave raids into Africa could have been well over 112 million. And when you add that to the number of those sold in the slave markets, the total number of African victims of the Trans-Sahara, East African, Indian Ocean, Red Sea slave traffic would be significantly higher than 140 million. And that's a conservative estimate. Um, I've seen figures much higher than that. But in my book, Slavery, Terrorism, Islam, I've, I've settled on the lowest figure, 140 million victims of the Islamic Muslim slave trade into the Middle East, across the Sahara, up the Red Sea, uh, across the Indian Ocean and East Africa. So 140 million victims of Islamic slave trade versus the 11 million that crossed the Atlantic, most of which went to Spanish, uh, Portuguese and French possessions in South and Central America. So when you get this historical perspective, it, it changes one's understanding. Also, the very etymology of the word slave. It comes from Slav, because the Romans enslaved people of Eastern Europe. You know, we're talking about the Bulgarians and so on, and uh, uh, the, the Serbs. And so the people of Eastern Europe, who were called Slavs, uh, their, their words were so interchanged. So, for example, in, Arab, in Arabic, the word for black person is Ibid. And uh, uh, in fact, the word for slave is the same, Ibid. So if you're a Christian Arab who speaks uh, Arabic, and you're referring to your black Christian brother in Christ friend, you've got to use the same word for slave because there is no distinction in the Arabic words, the same word for black person, the same word for a slave. Well, the Romans had the same attitude where a Slav was a slave, a person from Eastern Europe was a slave. That, that's just how the Roman Empire treated him. So uh, when you understand that, it makes a tremendous sense. Now, what also many people have completely ignored is that Vastly more uh, white slaves, Christian slaves from Europe were kidnapped by North Africans and taken to North Africa than, than Africans were ever taken into North America. And uh, it was an interesting point uh, two centuries ago that uh, uh, somebody made the remark that Europe is the only continent in the world with no slaves. Now, to, uh, because every culture, every religion, every a place in the world practiced slavery, and only Christianity was hostile to slavery. And it was anti-Christian forces that authorized involvement in the slave trade. So, for example, it was anti-Christians such as uh, Charles I, the one who was um, the cause of the civil war, and the one who Parliament, uh, in fact, uh, 
condemned for treason and had executed, that Charles I, he authorized Britain's involvement in the slave trade. And then uh, Parliament abolished it during the Commonwealth, and uh, Charles II reauthorized Britain's involvement in the slave trade. So interesting how uh, Europe's involvement in the slave trade was first authorized by Charles V. That's the same Charles V of, the, of Spain, of the Holy Roman Empire, that Martin Luther stood before and gave us, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God speech. And so interesting that enemies of the Reformation uh, were the main ones to get Europe involved in the slave trade, and to the reformers and the Protestants who opposed it. So there were no slaves in, in Europe, although there were Europeans who owned slaves overseas. But for example, in Britain, it was illegal to have a slave. So that, uh, as early as 1772, the legal principle was established that once a slave set foot in England, he was de facto set free because you couldn't have a slave in the British Isles. You know, a rule Britannia, uh, uh, Britons never, never will be slaves. Uh, that kind of uh, principle applied. So Europe, being Christian uh, to differing degrees, um, were anti-slavery, and the Protestants were the main abolitionists fighting against the slave trade, uh, William Wilberforce being the most famous amongst them. So isn't it interesting that today you've got uh, demands for reparation, but it's very focused. Only Christians, or those from a Christian background, are to uh, do reparations. There's no attempt to expect reparations from the Muslims, who's still involved. But uh, to give this background, there's the interesting books out, uh, such as White Gold and uh, uh, books by Milton. And uh, there's a professor who's studied the whole subject and produced the book White Slaves, Muslim Masters. And uh, he documents that between the 16th and 19th centuries, from the year 1500 to the year 1800, 1.25 million Europeans, Christian Europeans, were kidnapped by Muslim pirates, Barbary pirates, transported from uh, mostly, of course, Italy, Spain, France, uh, across the Mediterranean into North Africa. But some were kidnapped from Britain, from Cornwall, from Ireland, from Iceland. They went as far as Iceland, raiding for slaves, uh, hideous uh, uh, raids and, and abuses. And these, these Muslim pirates were, even went as far as kidnapping American uh, seamen uh, to the extent that the third uh, president of America, Thomas Jefferson, is the one who commissioned the Marines to go to the shores of Tripoli uh, to set American captives free and to punish the Barbary pirates there uh, so that they would leave the Americans alone. Uh, it's also a fascinating thing that 80% of America's national budget, federal budget, for the first two presidencies, that of George Washington and, and John Adams, 80% went to uh, paying ransoms uh, to Barbary pirates to let American ships go free or to let American sailors that they'd kidnapped go free or to leave American ships alone, protection money and so on. And it's only once they'd built up the American Navy and the Marines that they were able to defend themselves adequately were they able to uh, stop the slave trade that was uh, targeting them. Interesting that under Oliver Cromwell, he sent uh, Admiral Blake into the Mediterranean to uh, sink as many slave ships as he could and in order to uh, storm many of their uh, slave ports. And this is the motivation behind the French taking Algeria and the Italians taking Libya and uh, the French later taking Morocco and Tunisia was to stop the slave raids on southern Europe. Uh, this is the context. 
And so only uh, after North Africa started to be occupied by Europeans in the 1830s did the slave raids really cease. And uh, again, uh, many people have forgotten that. So if, if the Europeans were to demand reparations from North Africa, that would be far more uh, logical even than the Africans demanding slave reparations from the British and Americans, because the British and Americans have already paid billions and trillions in reparations in building up Africa in every kind of form of welfare, in every kind of free education and free medical and on and on. So uh, the huge amount that was put into just Liberia and Sierra Leone were reparations and Messina's reparations at that time. And the a deployment of the Royal Navy for an entire century to set captives free was also seen at the time as reparation. So if any country's done reparations to the people of the time, and of course, this is the biblical concept, that uh, restitution is to be done by the one who did the crime to the one who was the victim. And uh, so it makes no sense for people 150 or 200 years later to do reparations to people who seem to have the same kind of tone and color of their skin as the people who were the uh, victims. Because just take, for example, a person like Barack Hussein Obama. His mother's white. His father's a Muslim from uh, Kenya. Uh, he wasn't an African-American. He wasn't. None of his ancestors were brought there as slaves. He called himself an African-American. But there's a vast amount of black people in America today who were not even born in America, who are immigrants, recent immigrants from all over Africa. And then you've got so then you've got a whole lot of Europeans, such as from Eastern Europe, who moved to to America long after the war between the states and the end of slavery and so on. So why should people who are descended from people who were not involved uh, be paying reparations to people who weren't the victims? In fact, Barack Hussein Obama's father was from a Muslim tribe who were involved in the slave trade. So. Uh, he would have to be among the people paying the slave uh, uh, compensation or reparations by this logic. So it, it doesn't make much sense. But the Barbary pirates did such devastation that it said that there's not a harbor, palace, fortification, the whole of North Africa that was built between the uh, 1500s and the 1800s that wasn't built by white Christian European slaves in the whole of North Africa. So uh, that's a major, major a task. And then you've got black American professors who've looked into this and said that, you know, we really need to tell the truth about what's going on uh, with the slave trade. And they said, uh, first of all, you've got to understand that if you're talking about reparations, everybody in Africa is going to have to be paying reparations because, uh, in fact, the president of Benin pointed this out. Uh, I remember at the uh, Cape Town International Conference Center, we had Lausanne 3, which was uh, the uh, the largest missions conference in history. In 2010, Cape Town, we had representatives from 198 countries come together, something in the region of 4,300 people. It was staggering. And uh, the subject of reparation of slavery came up. And the president of Benin, who's a Christian, said, listen, all of us will have to be paying reparations to everyone because all of us are descendants of people who were involved in the slave trade. And all of us are descendants of people who were slaves. They said that that's just a fact. And so uh, here you've got an interesting um, perspective from a, a black professor who points out uh, that uh, uh, Frederick Douglass, who's a famous 
African-American uh, legend and myth uh, for his campaigning against the slave trade uh, from the 19th century. But Frederick Douglass said, we cannot repatriate uh, freed slaves in America back to Africa because of the savage chiefs on the West African coast who for centuries have been selling their captives into bondage and pocketing the cash for themselves, who would readily re-enslave the very uh, people that we try to repatriate back to Africa to Muslim slave traders. And so he was saying the entire um, uh, East and West African uh, tribal system was built up on slavery and either enslaving their own people or uh, capturing neighboring tribes and sell them into slavery, whether to Muslims or to some unscrupulous whites such as the Portuguese on, on the coast. And for example, it was uh, when I was in Nigeria on, on missions there, people said to us, the British didn't invade us. We asked them to come. We pleaded for the British to please come and take uh, Nigeria and make it a protectorate from the Muslims and to stop the slave trade. And so uh, there's many parts of, of Africa where Europe did not go for colonialization, to use the communist terms, but they went to make them protectorate from slavery. And, for example, uh, the people of, of uh, Basutuland and Swaziland, uh, they were protectorates. The people of Bechuanaland, which is today Botswana, were protectorates. Malawi was a protectorate. Uh, Sudan was a protectorate. Britain never colonized these countries. And you take a country like uh, Lawsiland, which is West Zambia, what was then Northern Rhodesia, the, the Lawsi king asked the British to make them a protectorate because they were actually concerned about the Portuguese encroaching on their territory and the Portuguese practiced slavery quite late. And uh, the British said, we will gladly do it, but then you've got to set your own slaves free. Now, the Lawsi king still had slavery because well, he didn't want foreign slavery, but they had slavery. And in many cases, it was the criminal justice system. So a person who displeased the king for whatever reason, or maybe they were a thief, they were made a slave. And so instead of prisons, they had slavery. And that could be for political crimes. It could be for uh, economic crimes. It could be for almost anything. Um, so there was slavery there. And the British uh, enacted uh, a uh, abolition of the slave trade as the condition uh, for making Lawsiland a protectorate. And so uh, this is the fact that we go around Africa, you find very little of Africa was colonized. Most of Africa was made protectorates by Britain to protect it from the slave trade and to set the people free. And then they came in building roads, railways, bridges, hospitals, schools, law courts, vast soccer stadiums, vast amounts of, of aid. And it's very disingenuous. It's very dishonest to make out that uh, all of Africa were victims of Britain and the rest of Europe's colonization policy when much of it was motivated by ending the slave trade and uplifting the people who had been ravaged by this devastating slave trade. And the slave trade was not just unscrupulous Westerners such as the Portuguese who were transporting slaves across the Atlantic. It wasn't uh, just Muslim slave trade. There was also the inter-African slave trade. And there were in every tribe engaged in slavery uh, to different degrees. Uh, but then you had a whole tribes who were dedicated to enslaving their neighbors, like the Madagascans would enslave the Mozambicans. The Yao people of Malawi would be enslaving uh, the other tribes and selling them to the Muslim slave traders. And, and so it goes on. So uh, you, when you actually look at the facts, and of course, you know, facts can really ruin a good media narrative. And truth does not fear investigation. But the people who are into this whole uh, 
what do we call it, reparations for slavery story, the last thing they need is for anyone to investigate the facts because the entire case falls to pieces the moment you look into it. And the moment you look into the biblical principles, restitution is only to be paid by the criminal to the victim directly. Uh, this is not meant to be a scam for extortion and a cover for corruption. It's meant to be about justice. And there's nothing just about making people who didn't do the crime give money to people who were never the victims. Back over to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, it's fascinating. And of course, what you see behind the scenes when the research is done, as Peter does it so well, is very different to what you hear in the mainstream media. And it would also... Uh, the enemy's um, desire for vengeance knows no bounds. Uh, they have memories like elephants. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if all this um, blaming Whitey for the slave trade is because they may have lost some money over it some centuries before, Peter. Well, <laughs> um, you know, I don't think there's ever been a people who've been more unselfish, more... Uh, generous, more concerned for others than the Anglo-Saxon, particularly Protestant people. Uh, never in history has there been any group of people who've transferred so much wealth and technology uh, and concern and practical help to other countries. In fact, what Europe has done to uplift Africa is staggering. And to bring people out of intertribal genocide and cannibalism and slavery into widespread devastation where famines were wiping out huge amounts of people. And the, the fact is that, in fact, they trebled the life expectancy of the people in countries they went to. Uh, Catholics generally doubled the life expectancy of people in, in their colonies, Portuguese, uh, Belgian, French, and so on. Uh, but the, the British, the Germans, and the Dutch trebled the life expectancy of the people they went to. And also, you can see where Protestants uh, colonized or made protectorates the literacy rate was sky high. It was three times higher than what the Catholics did. And of course, literacy before the European powers came in was nil. So all these people are trying to extort more money out of Europe. Uh, this, is just, um, this is just a scam. And one needs to call them out about it because this is just greed. Not just greed. There's also malice and anger involved in this. And isn't it interesting that... Um the slavery that still goes on in the Islamic world. I mean, one of the most um, useful uh, sources of information on the slave trade was the Nation of Islam's book, The Secret Relationship Between Blacks and Jews. Um, but there seems to be some sort of reluctance for certainly the Nation of Islam in America, where this book uh, came out of, to actually pressure Islamic countries around the world to cease the slave trade now. Would you agree? I would think so. Let's face it. A lot of what's going on today is distraction from the real issues. And we've got slavery going on today. And just take something like Red China. Red China has slave camps. There's millions of people in their factories who are effectively slaves. They don't get paid, really. They just get accommodation food, which is uh, not just Spartan. It's actually uh, prison conditions. And it's not just the fact that the toys of Disneyland and of... Uh, McDonald's are made by slaves in China, and that all the toys and so on that's flooding our shops are made by slaves in China. How can you undercut uh, the cost of slavery? Uh, obviously, they can produce it cheaper. They're not paying the workers. But then you get organ harvesting, where you can go to China and you can get anything. You know, I need a liver, I need a kidney, whatever. No problem. They just get their 
donor who's a, a disposable donor. They don't sew them up afterwards because he doesn't need to recover. And uh, they will give you what you want for X amount of money. And many of these victims are probably Christians. So uh, why all this outrage about something that ended two centuries ago and this total silence about the slavery today going on? It, plainly, we've just got to call it what it is. This is hypocrisy, selective blindness. Uh, and let's call out the liberals on all this because they're complete and utter hypocrites. Yes, I agree. And I think the situation in China as well, it's quite an interesting one because there's a lot of demonization of China going on in the West. And uh, there's talk that there could be saber rattling for a war with China. We know that uh, the enemy makes a tremendous amount of money and has done historically through wars. In fact, the wife of the first Rothschild, who changed his name from Bauer to Rothschild, Gutel Schnaper, she said of the five Rothschild sons, if my sons did not want wars, there would be none. Because uh, another thing that people don't always realise, and I certainly didn't until I'd looked into it, but in war, the victor has to honour the debts of the vanquished. And so if mm. you've lent money, you're going to get it back either way whoever wins and that's why they fund both sides um and going back to china though it's interesting because whilst the demonization goes on the sort of social credit system scoring system they've got over there seems to be what they're trying to implement in the west so it seems to be a testing ground over there and of course as you said um communism which is of course what china's run under i mean it's essentially bans Christianity, and you just touched on how Christians are treated out there, Peter. Mm. Yes, at the heart of this is something very anti-Christian. In fact, the narrative which Hollywood and the news media, which, let's face it, is, is owned by a real synagogue of Satan who hate Christ, uh, it's continually pushing an anti-Christian narrative. So the average person there who is a product of state education, he's only had state school textbooks, he only sees Hollywood-type mainstream movies, uh, watches mainstream uh, TV programs like the Bolshevik Broadcasting Corporation or the Clinton News Network or Reed Slime magazine. Their impression would be, you know, the only people who've ever engaged in slavery in the world have been white Christians from Europe and North America, and the only people who've been victims have been poor blacks. And, you know, they see slavery is a totally racial thing, a very limited thing that happened in a certain period of time. And they don't understand that it's a universal phenomenon and it's an ongoing phenomenon and it's still going on today. And so basically, I would say that the whole narrative has been uh, framed by the entertainment industry and by the news media and by the education institutions in the West overwhelmingly as an anti-Christian narrative. And so they're not concerned for justice. They're not concerned for slaves. They're not concerned for truth. What they're concerned for is extortion and political blackmail and intimidation and guilt manipulation. And it's all part of gaslighting a, a population to becoming Stockholm syndrome to do what they want so that they can, well, in this case, 2020 election year in America, what's the main thing? Get rid of Trump, get rid of uh, an opposition to democratic or communist controlled uh, opposition, which is wanting to uh, ruin America further. And of course, betray more countries into the hands of, of Marxist dictators. This is very insidious. And uh, basically, I think we can put this all under the guise of the revolution. It's revolutionary goals, which we see the banksters, the Hollywood elite, uh, the news media Mongols, mainstream media, 
are pushing specifically this narrative because it's designed to attack the Christians. Because if they were concerned for truth, if they were really concerned for victims, they would be focusing on the slave trade into the sex trafficking, which includes, by the way, Nevada, where it's legal, and who's running the brothels, and who's running the sex trade, and who's running the pornography industry, because pornography and prostitution and human trafficking are absolutely intertwined. They're, they're absolutely all one big interrelated industry. And if there was any concern for justice, there would be a concern for the slavery today, the human trafficking today, the pornography and perversion and prostitution industry of today. This is what they would be focusing on right now. But I think all of the things they're putting out there is to distract us from the real crime, the real issues, and they're doing it by targeting Christians. So you understand the agenda is basically an anti-Christian agenda. It is, and I'm just uh, jumping over to a couple of uh, Talmudic quotes that I've got here. Uh, the Jewish document Choshen Hamishpat states, if a Jew is doing good business with an Akam, and that's a Christian, it is not allowed to other Jews in certain places to come and do business with the same Akam. In other places, however, it is different, where another Jew is allowed to go to the same Akam, lead him on, do business with him, and to deceive him and take his money. For the wealth of the Akam is to be regarded as common property and belongs to the first who can get it. And then continuing, uh, there's uh, another one, Choshin Hamishpat 266,1. A Jew may keep anything he finds which belongs to the Akam. Uh, again, of course, that's the Christians. And uh, just go into the cold literary pr prayer because, folks, you know, we keep being told about anti-Semitism here, anti-Semitism there, and how we need to do all these things about anti-Semitism. But what do Jews actually believe? And why are their concerns about their involvement in the media and in the governments and what have you that they boast about? Well, this is the Cold Literary Prayer, which they recite on Yom Kippur once a year. This is what it says. All personal vows we are likely to make, all personal oaths and pledges we are likely to take, between this Yom Kippur and the next Yom Kippur, we publicly renounce. Let them all be relinquished and abandoned, null and void, neither firm nor established. Let our personal vows, pledges and oaths be considered neither vows, nor pledges, nor oaths. Now that's basically saying, let us lie. So how can you possibly mm. trust people to work with you if every year they pray that they'd be allowed to lie. It, 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 this is what boggles the mind. Over to you, Peter. Well, yes, and Vladimir Lenin uh, uh, expressed it this way. He said, to tell the truth is a petty bourgeois habit, but to lie and to lie convincingly is a sign of superior intelligence. Treaties are like pie crusts made to be broken. So right there, the Bolsheviks made it clear. They had that same view that lying is an art form to be perfected. To tell the truth is a petty bourgeois habit. And treaties are just like pie crusts that we make them to break them. And so I don't know why anyone wants to take their words seriously, whether you're talking about the Hollywood version, the news media mainstream uh, version, whether you're talking about the terrorist version, uh, the slave trader version, the pedophile version, uh, the Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein version, or whether you're talking about the um, uh, people who run the pornography and the child trafficking industry, they're all liars, the whole bunch of them. And they pride themselves on it. In fact, 
I've, I've had these people say to me to my face that they're more intelligent than us because they can lie and get away with it. And we so gullible and stupid and we believe them. So, uh, yes, this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a deceptive group who live on deception. And notice how we are regularly accused of white supremacy. But the only two groups I can see who really teach racial superiority are the Jews and the Muslims. Islam teaches that they are the most superior of all peoples ever evolved for mankind. It's actually in the Quran. And Judaism continually teaches that they're not only superior to others, but they don't owe the truth to others. And in fact, they don't need to respect the lives or the property of the Goyim. So basically, if you're going to follow the Talmudic version of Judaism, or if you're going to follow the Quranic version of Islam, they are the real supremacists. I don't know whites who are teaching a white supremacy because if a person's a wasp, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, he's normally thinking of being kind to others, being generous to others, uh, thinking of others better than themselves, uh, being being gracious and polite and gentlemanly and all this sort of thing. And uh, in fact, that is why Christians have always been the forefront of charity and of upliftment of others. And yet we are the ones being accused of white supremacy, whereas we are trying to follow the Christian ideal of humility. And so it seems that the ones who are accusing us of racial supremacy are the very ones who are practicing it themselves, and they're throwing up the accusations as a distraction, a smokescreen. Thank you so much, Peter. Fantastic information today, as always. And Peter will be back with us at the same time next week, folks. So um, I want to thank all of you for listening. I will, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, bye for now.